This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. The stakes of the 2024 presidential election just got higher. We have uh, some big things going in there. I just saw the Supreme Court just before I came. I got some beauties today. I had the one and then I had the other. The Supreme Court uh, is taking the case from Colorado. That was former President Donald Trump speaking at a campaign rally in Iowa on Friday. Trump is referring to a decision by Colorado's Supreme Court that barred him from the state's primary ballot last month. The decision was based on the 14th Amendment and Trump's involvement in the January 6th insurrection. Maine's Secretary of State issued a similar decision. Trump appealed both rulings last week, putting them on pause. And now the Supreme Court is going to weigh in. This is the first time in history the high court has been called on to declare a leading candidate's disqualification from holding office under the Constitution. But the court's decision isn't the only thing that could threaten the former president's political future. Trump is also facing a slew of lawsuits expected to come to a head this year. We talk about what those could mean for the election later. But first, the fate of the election is in the hands of the Supreme Court. What does that mean for the country's democracy? We'll get into it after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Let's meet our panel. Joining us is Mary McCord. She's the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Mary, it's great to have you back. 
Thanks for having me, Jen. Also with us from D.C. is David Becker. He's an attorney and the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. That's a nonprofit that works with election workers to build confidence in U.S. elections. David, it's great to have you back. Great to be with you, Jen. The court will hear oral arguments on February 8th. Mary, what main questions is the Supreme Court settling in this case? Well, that's actually a very interesting question in and of itself, because the court, when it um, granted the petition for certiorari, which means a petition for review in the Supreme Court, it granted the petition that was filed by former President Donald Trump, who posed just one question, one sort of overall omnibus question. Did this Colorado Supreme Court err in ordering President Trump excluded from the 2024 presidential primary ballot? But as the opposing side pointed out in their response to that petition for cert, they did not uh, oppose cert on a number of issues, but said not every issue is is worthy of the court's review. One of the things they pointed out is that is kind of an omnibus question. And really, there are at least seven subsidiary questions, whether a challenge to the constitutional qualifications of a candidate for president presents a non-justiciable political question. In other words, something the courts should review, whether the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment even applies to the presidency, whether it requires implementing legislation for states to actually implement it, to actually exercise any authority under it, whether uh, Congress or whether by intentionally mobilizing and inciting and encouraging the violent attack, Trump engaged in insurrection. Many, many questions. Normally, the Supreme Court doesn't grant something on sort of an omnibus question the way the former president posed it. It normally is very specific about the legal questions that it will resolve, and it normally will not really review factual determinations, such as a determination about whether the facts support that Mr. Trump engaged in insurrection. They will usually defer to factual findings made at the trial court level by the fact finder. So I think the question you've posed is a really interesting one. And what it says to me is that the U.S. Supreme Court, in granting this petition just one day after the the briefing on the petition, maybe the members of the court themselves could not agree on which particular questions they wanted to resolve, so they left it in this sort of omnibus form. Mm. But ultimately, what we'll know is, what does the 14th Amendment Section 3 mean? Does it apply to the office of the presidency? And is it something that a state like the state of Colorado can through its own state procedures, make a determination that someone is not eligible to be on the ballot. So, David, I just want you to to draw a clear line for us. What difference is there, if any, between being eligible to be on a ballot versus being eligible to hold office? Well, that is also an interesting question. And Mary hit the nail on the head when she described the questions before the court. Um, That largely depends on state law, that in some cases states are allowed to put, or parties are allowed to put disqualified candidates on the ballot as a nominee. That's pretty much what the Minnesota and Michigan Supreme Court said, that they can't get involved in this. This goes to the point that Mary raised about it being a non-justiciable question, that political parties in the United States have a wide range of latitude to choose nominees. And state law defines whether or not those nominees appear on the ballot or not. Uh, You could raise this question in a much more black and white area with regard to whether, you know, if the Republican Party or Democratic Party wanted to put George W. Bush or Barack Obama on the ballot, or if a party wanted to put former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's not a natural born citizen on the ballot, would they be able to do that? That hasn't been 
resolved at the federal level completely. It is something that state law prescribes. So if someone were held to be disqualified, it may be that states could still place them on the ballot. Mary, I think the overriding question many people have is, what will this decision mean for Trump and for future presidential candidates? What sort of guardrails will it set or possibly remove? Yeah, you know, we we can't know all the answers to that just yet, For partly because there is a little bit of confusion, I think, about exactly what issues the, the court will resolve. And this means that, frankly, the parties, when they file their briefs, and the briefs are on a very accelerated schedule, the first briefs due January 18th, and the re- responsive briefs due January 31st, the reply February 5th, just three days before argument. So the parties really kind of have to brief everything, because they don't know which issues the court is the most interested. But I interested in, but I do think at a minimum we will learn this basic question: uh, Does the Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three, apply to the office of the presidency? Because there are some people that argue that the use of the term "office" and "officer" within that amendment, Section Three, does doesn't actually apply to the presidency. It applies to other types of sort of what what's thought of as inferior officers, but not the presidency. I think they'll they'll decide that question. I think they'll decide whether there does need to be legislation passed by Congress to set up a process for making a determination about whether someone is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment or whether it's what we call self-executing. It doesn't need legislation, Congress, to say, here's the process for determining whether someone is ineligible. For example, the 14th Amendment Section 1, the Equal Protection Clause, Parties can litigate, bring a lawsuit directly under that constitutional amendment without particular legislation that Congress passed that sets up a process for doing so. But that's a question that remains open. I think those will be answered. And I think some level, at some level, they will answer the question about to try to find some uniformity among the states because right now, as David indicated, different states have different processes. And this is where I think you will also see a difference potentially between the primary elections and the general elections because in many states they leave it really up to the parties who they want to put on a primary election, as David indicated, a primary ballot. That could be somebody who's disqualified and under state law in some states, there's nothing the Secretary of State can do about that. In other states, like Colorado and Maine, there there is some action that can be taken. That's very different than the general election because that is not within the pure purview in some states of the political parties. And for example, in Michigan and and Minnesota, the courts suggested that even though they were not going to um, uh, review a a, a challenge to to Mr. Trump being on the primary ballot, it might be different when we get to the general ballot. And then finally, there's another issue, which is that assuming that the Supreme Court were were to say... um, there's no implementing legislation here that would allow states to try to, to prevent somebody from being on either the primary ballot or the general ballot. That would still leave open the question about whether Trump is, is disqualified under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, from holding that office. So, for example, when Congress meets on January 6th to count the electoral college ballots, could members of Congress say, Mr. Trump, 
assuming he was uh, elected in certain states, you know, winner take all is what most the states do. Assuming certain states sent forward electoral college ballots in his name, their members of Congress could challenge that and say, under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, he's not qualified because he engaged in an insurrection. So there is just, there is a lot here that I think the Supreme Court will will answer and clarify about the the way the the um, amendment works with respect to states putting uh, Mr. Trump or anyone else on a ballot. I'm not sure they'll get to this question about January 6th. Mm-hmm. Let's head to a quick break, but we'll be back with more of the conversation in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. All that sitting and swiping... Your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. David, this decision by the Supreme Court to take up this case is coming at a time when states are trying to plan for their primary elections. Colorado certified its Republican primary ballot on Friday with Trump listed as a candidate. It has to be mailed to overseas voters starting this month. If the court rules that Trump can be removed from Colorado's ballot, will it be too late to matter? Well, it it probably won't be too late to matter, but we often lump this into one big question, should Trump be removed from the ballot or disqualified from office, when it's actually two distinct questions. One is, does the Constitution require that Donald Trump be disqualified from holding the presidency? As inconvenient as that might be, the 14th Amendment exists, it has meaning. They don't use the term convicted of insurrection, they use engaged in insurrection. Um, there's a variety of other reasons that it ne- that issue needs to be resolved. And then secondarily, what are the after effects? What are the political effects and what are the effects with regard to election administration? And with regard to election administration, a, having a candidate disqualified after the ballots have gone to printer can be obviously a big problem with voter confusion. Um, it has happened before. It might not even be due to disqualification. It's happened sometimes because a candidate has died uh, in between the time the ballots went to the printer and before the election happened, and they've replaced that candidate with another individual. So probably the courts would have to get involved. Most likely what would happen is if there were a disqualified candidate on the ballot, those votes would not count. And that's why it's so important in this case 
that the Supreme Court reach a decision on the merits as quickly as possible to help inform election officials. And that on the merits piece is really important. As Mary pointed out, the issue of whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and is disqualified could be brought up all the way through January 6th. And it's important for the Supreme Court to weigh in here, although it could dispose of this case for a variety of reasons, including that it's non-justiciable, it's too early to rule on this because it's a primary, or because there's um, no implementing legislation, that it's not self-executing, or that the presidency is not an officer of the United States. Those two questions, most lawyers believe uh, that Trump's arguments are weaker on those two issues, but that could be resolved on those two, and you'd never have to get to the issue of whether or not Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. And if that doesn't happen, we can imagine what might happen in the aftermath of an election in which he might have won, where political arguments might hold sway rather than the legal rulings of the Supreme Court. Well, on Thursday, House Democrats called on Justice Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from the case. Thomas's wife, Virginia, Jenny Thomas, has been connected to efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Thomas has shown no sign that he will recuse himself, and there isn't a mechanism to force his recusal. At the same time, the Supreme Court is suffering a legitimacy crisis. According to a 2023 Gallup poll, only 41 percent of Americans approve of the court's performance, and that's a record low. I'd like to hear from both of you how the current climate raises the stakes for the court and this decision. Mary? Well, I think it raises it immensely, Jen. You know, as you indicated, public confidence in institutions across the board, governmental institutions, is down. But what's really remarkable is is how down it is for the Supreme Court, which oftentimes has still remained at a higher level confidence than the executive branch or the legislative branch. And so right now, when we see cases with a political valence on them, I mean, there are legitimate legal issues here that are, that are um, important, uh, obviously you know, whether the Constitution disqualifies someone from being president because they've engaged in an insurrection, that's hugely important. We have to remember this particular amendment in this section were were enacted after the Civil War for good reason to prevent those who had participated in the Civil War who had committed insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States were not eligible to hold office. Um, And that's where its origins are. So it's critically important. But in this environment, you know, the Supreme Court, no matter what it does, it will be criticized by some people. It will be criticized if it, you know, if it says that that this is something that um, can't apply here to Mr. Trump. There will be those who feel like that's Ill- illegitimate and, and vice versa. So, and, and on top of this particular case, when I know we're going to probably get to this, they may be ruling on a case on uh, involving Mr. Trump's uh, criminal responsibility for um, the actions and things leading up to and on January 6th. So uh, we have these cases that one is in the Supreme Court, one that may get there. And then we have so many other cases on other issues, including reproductive rights and other things that have caused big portions of the population to feel like mm-hmm. the court is reaching for things it wants to rule on uh, and uh, in ways that um, are very outcome determinative. And I think that, you know, there's no question that that's going to impact how people view its decision in this case, no matter what the ruling is. Well, and David, specifically around this issue of recusal and Justice Thomas, there's a lot of reporting about his wife's, his wife, Jenny Thomas's involvement um, in, in attempting to overturn the 
election results. Is there any pressure on him from even within the court itself to step away from this case? Well, it's hard for me to um, kind of assume what might be happening inside the court or what's going on inside Justice Thomas's head. Of course, if this were a different court that was held to a a standard of ethics, um, this would there, there would certainly be a strong case for recusal here, given some of the facts. But that said, I mean the the bigger issue is these nine justices all sought this job out. They all went through confirmation hearings. They wanted this lifetime appointment. And this is their job. This is the job of the United States Supreme Court, and it's a difficult one. It's Their main job is to interpret the United States Constitution. And here we have a section of the United States Constitution, 14th Amendment, Section 3, that has never really been fully interpreted by them, particularly with regard to a presidential candidate. And it will likely have political repercussions, but that's their job. They're supposed to do this outside of the political realm of the Article I legislature, Congress, and the Article II executive, the presidency. And I expect and hope that they will do this and they will do it clearly. And I think there will be a lot of pressure on them to try to reach as much as possible a consensus. And this is where the tension between what might be purely legally required whether or not Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and is seeking an office of the United States, and whether or not there might be some other alternative rulings, such as ruling this doesn't apply to the office of the United States or there is no implementing legislation. There might be some tension there because there might be some better outcomes that they could reach that could reach more consensus, even though the law might strictly require some other uh, ultimate ruling. David, courts and, and governments already make decisions about ballot eligibility, for instance, with age and, and citizenship restrictions. But what I'm hearing from both you and Mary is that this particular scenario has never been tested. Is that accurate? It's never been tested with regard to a presidential candidate, a major leading presidential candidate. That's true. But the 14th Amendment has applied as recently as just last year, actually, I'm sorry, 2022, we're now past New Year's, um, when a New Mexico County commissioner who had been found guilty of criminal trespass on January 6th in the attack on the Capitol was disqualified from his office in New Mexico. So this has been applied. It still has meaning. And we should also remember, it's still a very legitimate issue. And I'm not saying which way or the other it should be resolved, but it's a fact that unlike issues of policy that people might have disagreement on with regard to the border or other things, a majority of the United States House of Representatives, including 10 Republicans, voted for articles of impeachment that include inc- included incitement of insurrection in early 2021 against pre- uh, former President Trump. And then when the, tri- when the impeachment trial went to the Senate, 57 senators, including seven, seven Republicans, voted to convict Donald Trump. That was not sufficient to establish the conviction, but it was still a majority. And that conviction would have disqualified him from office. So this isn't some just purely academic exercise thinking about what might, engage, what, what might be engagement in, exer- in insurrection. There was an actual trial on the floor of the Senate that looked at these issues, and a majority of United States senators, including seven Republicans, found that he engaged in insurrection. Now, That, I think, puts it squarely before the Supreme Court to render a decision on the merits on this one way or the other, whether or not he engaged in insurrection. 
We got this message from Elise, who emails, As much as I hope the Supreme Court will bar Trump from running for president, I'm worried what may happen if they vote in support of Colorado and Maine. Trump and other Republicans have continued to spew lies that the election was rigged. As someone whose husband and friends were Capitol Police officers that day, any threat of violence is particularly triggering. I don't trust his supporters not to become even more violent in the event that Trump loses the election, let alone is barred from the ballot. And David, we, we've been getting this type of message quite a bit. And how big of a concern is the potential for backlash? And what is the court's responsibility, even in the face of that potential backlash? Well, I think, first of all, the concern is real. There's been, um, th- there's been political violence and threats of political violence for quite some time. This isn't hypothetical. January 6th was just such an event. Um, I think it's fair to say that the former president and some of his supporters have actively encouraged political violence. I work with election officials all over the country, uh, Republicans and Democrats in red areas and blue areas. And I'll tell you, they've been suffering abuse, threats, and harassment for well over three years now, largely driven by the lies about the 2020 election that have been spread by the losing candidate. And I think it's proper to be concerned about that and to be prepared as best possible to protect against it. But on the other hand, We've got to rule where the law takes us and be prepared for it regardless. And this is one case where the Supreme Court's going to have to rule and we'll have to deal with the consequences after. We're discussing Trump's lawsuits, the Supreme Court's decision to hear the Colorado ballot case and what it all means for the 2024 election. We'll hear more from our guests and from you in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now back to Donald Trump's lawsuits. The former president is embroiled in a slew of legal battles. He's been indicted on 91 criminal counts connected to his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, hoarding classified documents and falsifying business records. Last month, special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to step in front of the appeals court to consider Trump's immunity case. This is an unusual request. David, give us some background. Yeah, there's a claim made by Donald Trump in that case that essentially the president is immune from all potential criminal prosecution. He has a very broad sense of what criminal immunity uh, a president or former president might hold uh, for actions, uh, whether official or not, that took place uh, in while he was in office. Um, the trial court ruled that he was not immune from these charges. Uh, we're going to have an argument tomorrow in the D.C. Circuit Court on that same issue. And uh, the special counsel attempted to um, jumpstart this by going directly to the Supreme Court to see if they would take this case ahead of review by the D.C. Circuit. That was mainly for timing issues it has been done in the past, though it's very rare. I don't think it was a big surprise that the United States Supreme Court did not take it. 
especially given the fact that in these cases, the D.C. Circuit has been moving very expeditiously. I expect them to rule very quickly after the hearing, um, as quickly as possible on this. I think most observers believe that his argument that criminal immunity is as broad as it is, is going to fail in the D.C. Circuit and likely in the United States Supreme Court as well, mainly because we have one of the kind of central tenets of our American system of democracy is that the president is not a king. The president is subject to the same laws that everyone else is, and I think that's going to apply here likely. Let's turn to the other federal criminal case against Trump involving mishandling of classified documents. That trial is scheduled for May 20th. Trump has requested to push back the hearing, though, which Judge Aileen Cannon said she'll review in March. Judge Cannon has already pushed back the deadline several times. Mary, how long could Trump delay this trial? Well, of course, Mr. Trump is trying to delay, you know, all of the trials, the criminal cases against him until 2025, 2026, you know, well after the election. And in the D.C. Uh, case, the January 6th related case, he's found a, not a receptive audience to that, not from the trial judge, uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin, so far, you know, not from the D.C. Circuit, if you think about how they have expedited the appeal of his immun- of the immunity question. And that is all because they are trying to get to this March 4th trial date in um, the in D.C. Now, that date may slip some, but, you know, the, the courts here are, are very, it seemed, you know, are are pushing to get a trial off the ground. Judge Cannon in the Southern District of Florida is somewhat the opposite of that. She has not yet granted Mr. Trump's request to defer the trial till well after the election. And of course, in his view, after he serves as another term as president. Um, but he, but she has been much, much more open to Mr. Trump's different types of delays, and she has instituted her own delays. So I think that um, there is a, a not insignificant likelihood that in March, when she brings the parties back together, that she will push off that May 20th trial date. It also could be that that date will come into conflict with other cases. For example, if the March 4th D.C. trial gets delayed, but then starts a little later, it could potentially bump up at least to the preparation for a May 20th trial, if not the trial itself. So when you have so many cases, remember, we also have um, uh, the state case in Georgia that hasn't yet had a trial date set. And we also have Alvin Bragg's, the Manhattan district attorney case against uh, Mr. Trump, also a criminal case set to go later in March. You know, when you have four different criminal cases, they are going to bump up against each other, um, particularly if any one of them gets delayed or anything like that. Mm. This is another message we got. Mr. Trump is working his hardest to push these lawsuits past November, hoping for re-election, and if elected, will make irreparable changes and build enough power to influence the justice system to prevent his being convicted. If he is elected, American democracy will collapse. This is another concern that we've heard from uh, many people. If Trump delays long enough, and if he does win the presidency, he could just pardon himself. David, we're talking about both state and federal charges. So how legitimate is this concern? On the pardon question specifically, there is an open question as to whether or not a president can pardon himself from federal crimes. Um, I I don't want to speculate as to what a Supreme Court might do if that was attempted, but that is an open question that has never been fully decided. However, it's clear that a president cannot pardon himself for state crimes. State crimes would still apply. That's primarily the Fulton County, Georgia case. That would still be going on. However, 
the fact that he might be the president at that point in time might severely complicate the prosecution, and it would definitely complicate and perhaps eliminate the prosecutions at the federal level. We can imagine what would happen after uh, then-President Trump appointed a new attorney general and what that attorney general might do within the Justice Department to slow these down or, or kill these charges entirely. So, and this, I don't think this is really speculation either. I mean, he's made it quite clear that that is his intention, that he wants to drag this out, that he wants to use the justice system in his favor if he is reelected. And it's, it's something, obviously, I think people should be concerned about when they're, when they're considering these issues. Here's another message from one of you. I want to know why it's taking so long to get these cases resolved. Considering they potentially determine who our next president is, I think they would be expedited. Mary, give us a little insight into the legal process and why these trials are happening when they are. Sure. So if we just take the example of the D.C. federal case, the case that's related to various uh, charge conspiracies for related to January 6th, you know, that case uh, was brought and any time a criminal case is brought, I was a prosecutor for more than 20 years, there is discovery, which means the prosecutor has to provide to the defendant all the documents and information and evidence that it intends to rely on at trial. Uh, And in this case, that's a lot of evidence. Think about all the videos and digital evidence about January 6th, all the interviews, all the grand jury witnesses, um, so much evidence to provide over to Mr. Trump. They also have to provide anything that might be exculpatory or impeaching. So anything that might actually help President Trump, they have to provide that. Then there is also a period of time where the defendant can file motions to dismiss the prosecution, and those take time to resolve. And here, of course, Mr. Trump has filed lots of those, the most significant of which are the motions to dismiss on the grounds of immunity, as we've just been discussing, absolute immunity from prosecution for crimes within what he says are the scope of his official acts. But he defines official acts to apply to pretty much anything that he uh, did back when he was in office. There's also, he has also made an argument that it would violate the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution for him to be tried for crimes relating to January 6th because he claims that his acquittal in the impeachment trial in the Senate should actually bar a subsequent prosecution. I think a very weak argument, and most legal scholars think it's a weak argument, but nevertheless, that requires briefing, requires argument, requires an opinion, and then there are appeals, and that's what we're seeing right now with the with the argument tomorrow. He's filed multiple other motions to dismiss as well, dismissed based on statutory grounds, dismissed based on other constitutional grounds, dismissal based on selective and vindictive prosecution. All of these are things that have to get briefed over, you know, even on an expedited schedule that requires parties to file briefs, seriatim, and the court to make decisions. So this is actually an accelerated schedule for a criminal case, but it does seem like uh, there are a lot of barriers, a lot of sort of legal barriers that are being thrown up to make it difficult to get to trial on, on March the 4th. I want to get to another question for one of you. How many judges that Trump appointed are overseeing these cases or might during the appeals process? Mary, what can you tell us briefly? I have not actually uh, looked up, you know, uh, for every case, the judges, although frankly, at this point, I guess we do know, um, you know, Judge Chutkin was not appointed by Donald Trump. Judge Cannon at the Mar-a-Lago case was appointed by Donald Trump on the um, 
panel in the D.C. Circuit who will be hearing the appeal on the immunity question tomorrow. There is no Trump appointee on that panel. Uh, there's, I think, believe a George Bush appointee and um, Biden appointees. But of course, on the U.S. Supreme Court, we have three uh, Trump appointed justices. And so um, we don't know yet about uh, who might be on any appeal from Margot Lago, because of course, we haven't been to that point. And, and so we you know, it's really just a, a fairly limited number of judges so far on these cases, federal judges that could have been appointed by Trump. But I would caution that even though, you know, there there is a correlation between, oftentimes between who appointed a justice and sort of their ideolo- ideology, but it, it, it does not mean that um, those people appointed judge, judges as judges, will just violate the rule of law, right? Well, People, and reasonable minds can differ, right? And, it, and it's good to point out here that during the 2020 election, several judges heard cases from the Trump campaign challenging the 2020 election results and, and ruled against Trump. So that that's good to point out here. I want to get to this last message from Javon, who writes, I have little hope that the Supreme Court will uphold the Colorado decision. The deeper problem is that Trump is the leading GOP candidate. I won't boil this down to parties because I know there are never Trumpers in the GOP. We have a fundamental crisis among we the people. If a meaningful number of us are willing to vote for and follow the lead of someone who is a tyrant, the courts can't resolve that problem because there will be another Trump if we don't make better decisions. I'd love to hear from both of you about the precedent that will be set during these cases, and what do you think it means for the country moving forward? David? Well, the precedents, uh, the Supreme Court is going to have to rule in many of these cases, and it's going to have an effect on the electorate. There's no question. But I think the most important thing for voters to understand is that regardless of what you may be hearing, regardless of what you, who you may have voted for, our elections are secure and transparent and verifiable and have withstood all the scrutiny than they've ever been before. We have more paper ballots, more audits, more recounts, more judicial scrutiny. We know what the outcome of elections are. And so don't allow yourselves to become a target of grift by those who have lost elections and are seeking to raise money off of you. We're going to need to come together as a country after an election in which likely half of us have voted for a losing candidate. And that's the way it's always been. And we should be ready for that. Mary, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree with David. I would also say, regardless of the legal outcomes in these cases, Americans should be looking at what the facts are. You know, the facts are not uh, hard to determine. There are video, there are audios, there are interviews, there are over a thousand people charged with crimes related to January 6th and many of them convicted and serving time. People need to assess, regardless of the outcome of this case, are they really going to vote for someone who engaged in the activity that Mr. Trump engaged in? That's Mary McCord, the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University, and David Becker, the executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. David, Mary, thanks. Today's producer was Haley Blassingay. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads 
fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Get the world of wine delivered to your door. When you join the NPR Wine Club, you'll receive the stories behind every bottle and favorite NPR shows and personalities arriving in liquid form, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. The NPR Wine Club is a delicious way to support NPR's programming. If you're 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org slash podcast. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.